heroic he comes idiot. across. Good evening, folks. Uh, welcome back to your Juno. It has been a little bit. Um, but fuck off. Um, we're busy, and you know we have stuff to do. But it doesn't matter. Uh, it's Thanksgiving. Uh, if you're you know normal. If you're north of the border, yeah. Yeah, and um, so happy Thanksgiving to all my Canadians. Uh, to to all my Americans. happy Thanksgiving if you're normal, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but today is episode fifty. This is very special. You know, we've been doing this for probably about six months now, which is crazy um, to think about. It's crazy to think about, and we've done fifty episodes. Um, and first of all, we plan to keep going. Um, and second of all, we wanted to do something a little bit special for you. So, uh, if you didn't know, if I, I don't know if I've mentioned on the show, but I am a debate nerd now. Um, God help us all. Yeah. So we figured, uh, this is something that is, uh, we, we decided we debate something that's a disagreement between that. Um, I think at one or two points, if you, you know, if you're a psychopath and you, you listen to our back episodes, you might've heard it come up once or twice as sort of like an offhand, like, you know, we didn't really dive into it further, but we kind of, we've mentioned this on the pod a couple times. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, I, I have my opinion on it. He has his, and we figured what better way to mark 50 episodes of this podcast than to really sort of air it out and, you know, hear what both of us have to say about this topic. Yeah, so, so we've brought on my, our friend and my debate partner, uh, Jalila, to moderate uh, a debate between us on the topic of, um, within a leftist context, uh, should the Canadian military's budget be raised or lowered? So I'm just going to hand it over to her. She's going to explain the rules. Uh, and I think get right into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. And that's Straight no on, problem. Of well, uh, today will be kind of semi-formal. Uh, Malcolm, as we discussed, not going to be uh, as rigid as the parliamentary debate. Oh, thank, thank God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be, I feel like that would not be ideal for the podcast format. Um, no. Be weird. I'm still gonna hope for uh, you know moderating a little bit more than I guess what we would call U.S. presidential debate style. We're trying to we're trying to find the synthesis of yeah like parliamentary style debate versus whatever the hell the first presidential debate was. We're trying to find like a sort of man. I mean this is this is dialectics right now. We're really we're getting into yeah. some heavy shit. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. I. I don't think I can mute your mic, but I will cut you off if you're just, like, being a dick. If you want, we can actually no. give you admin so you can cut our audio feed. <laughs> I think I think we can, actually. Yeah, I'm hoping it's... <laughs> it shouldn't, it shouldn't come to that. Yeah, I solemnly I'm pledge not to be mean to my friend. I, I will not interrupt you, Declan. I solemnly pledge to not interrupt my friend. I will not interrupt you, Malcolm. Okay, and there I will interrupt you, Julia. I know that Very was an issue that. in the okay. first presidential yeah. yeah. Um, anyways, what was I? Yeah, the rules for this. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, five minute opening speeches. I'm going to give uh, the first speech to Malcolm on what is loosely the affirmative side. Um, and after that, we're going to have some questions, a few minutes to answer those, a few minutes for open debate. We're going to repeat that a few times, and we'll have closing statements at the end. Uh, and I think without further ado, uh, we'll, we'll get right into it. Malcolm, you have five minutes. Uh, oh, shoot. Ben. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, this is bad. This is bad. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I've started. All right. So, um, I just want to start this by thanking you again, Shalila, for, for hosting this. I'm really looking forward to this. So, I would like to start this debate with a question. What is a nation? Is it a geographic region? Is it a state or a system of governance? Someone, as well as all these things, it is a group of people with shared interests. You know, uh, a government is the vehicle through which those interests are advanced, at least in a, a at least marginally democratic nation like Canada. Um, you know, you will probably hear Declan talk about things in the common interest, you know, the great cost of defense expenditure, uh, what we could achieve without these costs, etc. However, uh, in this opening speech and throughout this debate, I aim to prove uh, two things. 
uh, one that the defense sector falls uh, within this sort of section of, of, of the common interest, and, and two, that the rest of these things that are healthcare, education, and infrastructure cannot be guaranteed without a strong military. And in fact, a military that is stronger than the one we have now. Um, so firstly, some framing. Uh, in order for me to win this debate, I simply have to prove uh, the fairly, fairly uncomplicated premise that the Canadian people would benefit more so than they would suffer from an increase to the budget for Majesty's Armed Forces. You know, no matter how small, if I can prove a net positive, I win. And if Declan can prove a net negative, he wins. Um, so this comes down to, as I mentioned, two mechanisms. Um, the first is simply that, uh, you know, nothing that one could see funded with formerly military money, be it uh, healthcare, be it education, infrastructure, welfare, UBI, whatever, it doesn't really matter. No matter what, program for the social good you want to put military money into uh, instead of the military, none of them can be guaranteed without a strong military. You know, NATO recommends that Canada spends 2% of her GDP on the military for defense within this alliance structure, um, this multilateral system. Uh, we are entering a time, of course, in which this alliance is crumbling for better or for worse. How much does Canada spend? Not even 1%. Some analysts have suggested that we should be spending actually up to 4% even higher. We can no longer rely on the United States to protect us, and as conflict grews on the horizon, it's unfair to our population to leave it undefended. And and any decrease to an already underfunded military will simply make the problem worse. You know, Russia is becoming increasingly aggressive over our Arctic. So is America, even. You know, China continues to conduct hostage diplomacies to attack the United States through us. And, you know, the United States continues to disregard Canada and our strategic interests. You know, we are... There's never been an, a time in history thus far in which Canada has been so alone. And, you know, I, I just said the world is unstable. I, I would like to expand on that, actually. Um, you know, already Egypt and Ethiopia are on the brink of a war over freshwater. You know, as our climate dies, freshwater becomes an increasingly valuable resource. Canada just so happens to sit on 20% of that freshwater more than anywhere else in the world. We also sit on an opening trade route in the Arctic to the Northwest Passage, and oil drilling in the Arctic becomes more viable. Climate change has made Canada the ultimate geostrategic prize for any nation in the world, and we are still, at this moment, unable to defend ourselves and our Arctic. Canada exists within a completely unique position in global history, with a tiny population, lots of resources, and a huge amount of territory right next to our superpower, yet we are not subjugated. This is because we have had the backing of one power, superpower, or another throughout history, but that backing is no longer assured. You know, we cannot guarantee all the things that Declan will inevitably say we need to fund with military money without this military because ultimately any occupation government or tributary government will have priorities outside of serving the Canadian population best. My second point, the military actually serves the public good as well beyond just protecting the, um, you know, what we like. In the far north where there are not many job opportunities, many indigenous people join the Royal Canadian Rangers where their expertise in their environments is put to good use defending our Arctic as well as training for future needs as the climate warms, rescuing cruise ships on the ground, planes with the crash, crash, etc. Our Arctic will need to be defended more and more as time goes on, and the military has provided a way for that to happen while also working to help employ Indigenous people in a place without much opportunity as, as Southern Canada. Furthermore, the Canadian Armed Forces have served as a rapid response force whenever fast action and authoritarian command structure is needed, whether it's the Toronto ice storm in the 90s, the yearly flooding in Quebec, or more recently Operation Laser, taking over nursing homes which were woefully unprepared for a pandemic, something which it looks like they need to do again, the military offers what the civilian government cannot, quick response and effective movement. That's not to say that the military is better at governance, of course, but simply that the military is designed for emergencies. This top-down structure, which is rightly antithetical to the principles of democratic government, fill these gaps which democratic government cannot, simply because the necessary command structure to deal with a climate emergency in a battle is the same. I hope I've laid out my position well. I hope this is a good debate. Good luck to you, Declan. I look forward to it. I'd like to thank Malcolm for his remarks. Uh, and I invite Declan to give a speech, not exceeding five minutes, uh, opening up the case for his side. So I would like to uh, begin, you know, again, by thanking Jalila for hosting the debate. Um, I hope we'll both at least have a lot of fun doing this, even if no one's minds are changed. And I would like to start by, I guess, making a, a plea to a, a harm reduction point of view. Now, it, you know, as, as I expected, Malcolm brought up the fact that 
Canada has a lot of natural resources that we're currently sitting on, and that we don't have a strong enough military to protect these resources. And he specifically brings up the breaking down of our alliances with our, with our international allies, whether it be NATO, whether it be just the United States. And I would like to make the case that the solution is not to overfund our military in, or, in the interest of preserving in the interest of preserving our natural resources, but rather to attempt to strengthen these alliances diplomatically so that we don't have to resort to you know diplomacy at the barrel of a gun in order to defend ourselves. I think that we shouldn't be we shouldn't instantly jump to being forced to defend our resources if we can avoid it because you know as tired a talking point as it is when it comes to American electoral politics, harm reduction is a valuable um, it's a valuable idea. So does expanding our military power truly lead to a reduction in harm because I, I don't I don't accept the framing that an increase in military spending when it comes to Canada would only mean that we'd be spending it on defending ourselves as it stands right now if the United States were to get involved in another conflict such as the war in Iraq we would still likely follow them and we would follow them because we would have the mil you know the United States would expect us to because we would then have an increased military and we'd be able to do more for whatever case that the uh, United States needed it to. So another point that I'd like to raise is should we as leftists make attempts at preserving a, a sort of nationalism? Should we should we attempt to make you know ensure that we are I don't want to say xenophobic because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but should we attempt to preserve a sense of, you know, what we have is ours and not to be shared? And I, I think it's also, and, you know, my third point would be, you talk about, you know, how funding the military can help think, fund things like disaster response. Should those funds not be allocated to a, a non-military organization that could carry out the same thing? the same duties, but not have it be tied to an, 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 at the end of the day, imperialist force, such as our disaster response to Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, where we came in and set up local governments that, in the interim at least, attempted to provide some sort of stability to a region. Now, that's not to say that those efforts were a failure, but rather I think we should critically examine whether or not having a force that is part of the military attempt to restore order in a foreign country. I, I think that, you know, you'd agree with me in saying that the the attempt at setting something like that up in Iraq was a failure. And so I, I don't believe that a disaster response team should be tied to the military. And I, I think with that, I'll, I'll end my opening statements. And I think we can uh, get started with some questions. Thank you. Thank you, Declan, for that great speech. So my first question uh, is for Declan, a question for Malcolm will follow. Um, Declan, I just want to know what you think new world order uh, would look like with a lesson military spending in Canada. Two minutes to respond. So just to clarify, do you mean domestically or in terms of like the entire world? The entire world. I want to know why global conflicts, whatever you think, like the global results of defunding the military um, in Canada, I, I want you to know why that's better uh, on your side. Um, I believe that if we were to lessen our military presence worldwide, it would show that we aren't, you know, a, a sort of puppet of the United States that they can take along with them for their conflicts. Um, I'm very strongly opposed to that. And so I believe that if we were to begin to defund our military and you know put not only would it serve as a, a sort of blueprint as you know we are probably the closest to the united states when it comes to a system of governance in, in terms of you know things like population density and how we run our economies not to mention how it linked our economies are if we were to begin defunding our military and putting the the money back into the you know the social safety net as as it were I believe that it could serve for the United States as an example of a, a sort of peaceful exit from an empire. I'm not, I'm not trying to claim that Canada, you know, is necessarily an imperialist power, 
But I would say that if we can show that we that de by, by defunding the military and reallocating those funds, I think that on the whole, not only would it be safer for Canadians, I think that it would perhaps cause some um, some people in the United States to look to Canada as an example of a, a peaceful way to, I guess, exit from being an imperial power. And it could show that you wouldn't, you don't necessarily have to enforce your way of life on everyone in the world from the barrel of a gun. And so I, I think that by defunding the military for Canada, at least, you know, we, we would still be in our international treaty agreements but much of the the resource wars that we have been dragged into for the United States' sake haven't been haven't run necessarily alongside those treaties. We've been dragged in by the United States, and so if we reduce our military presence and reduce our sort of usefulness to the United States, they may be more hesitant to engage in these in these resource wars. Okay, just a quick follow up before I move on to Malcolm. You you've kind of been flip flopping on this so far. Uh, so for the record. Think that Canada is an imperialist power? Yes or no? I do not. I don't think we are an imperialist power. I think that we get to dragged into wars of of imperialist wars by the United States, and I believe that a reduced military presence would would reduce that. All right, great answer, Malcolm. Uh, I was going to ask you the same question, but I changed my mind on this. You make a recent or a reasonably strong case for. And the military being important for Canadian nationalism, but I want to know why we should care about that from a leftist context. You have two minutes to respond. Thank you very much. That is an excellent question. So I, um, I, I think it's important to remember, um, you know, that I, I actually do. I agree with Declan that that the Canadian military in the past and the you know war in Afghanistan specifically. Uh, served American imperial interests. Um, you know, I, I, I do find this to be a largely irrelevant point, because unless Declan could prove that lowering our military budget would actually distance us from the instruments and machinations of American imperialism, which I imagine he might struggle to do, I, I, I would suggest abandoning it altogether. You know, I, I think that specifically uh, a form of left-wing Canadian nationalism, as has been a, a tradition of left-wingers all the way back to, to Tommy Douglas, um, you know, a sense of, yes, you know, that the government's first priority should be towards Canadian citizens is the best way of distancing ourselves from the American empire. You know, we can protect ourselves. We don't need their protection. If we don't need their protection, we don't need uh, to give anything back to them. You know, Declan talked about how he wanted to strengthen alliances diplomatically, talk about diplomacy as opposed to barrel of a gun. But of course, these negotiations have to come from a place of power uh, in a sense. You know, we can't ask for protection from anybody if we put nothing in, and right now we're not putting anything in. So, you know, if our government's first responsibility is to be to our people and we want to separate ourselves from the American Empire, we need to have a military that is not subservient to their interests. And the best way to have a military that's not reliant on the United States is to have a military that has adequate funding, adequate equipment, and an adequate command structure. And that's done by increasing uh, the military budget. I don't think there's anything else that could fit in in 17 seconds, so I give the rest of my time back. Okay. I now have uh, two minutes of open discussion. Actually, I'm going to make that three minutes of open discussion. Respond to anything you've heard so far, opening statements, responses, whatever you see fit. Great, I'll give the first question to Desmond if he wants it. So, I, I just want to sort of understand where, why you believe that the military should be in charge of disaster response and other other things that they've been used for in the past that I, I'm not going to argue that, you know, bringing in the military for the, the ice storms or, you know, for international disaster response is necessarily a, a mistake. I'm just curious why you think that yeah. an organization well, tied to the military should be responsible for that. Simply because the military already has the infrastructure to do so. They have the infrastructure to project across the country. Uh, they have the authoritarian command structure that I mentioned is so effective, and I think you have to agree that it's, it's very effective. Um, and they have, you know, the resources and the people, and to build up an independent disaster relief force that has the ability to do that would cost so much more than simply, uh, you know, giving the military the resources it needs 
to respond to these types of disasters. It's been what they it's what they've done for forever. You know, they fight forest fires, they've been fighting forest fires, they rescue crash ships and they put sandbags by the banks of rivers. Um, so I think you know, there is a valid argument to be made, but quite simply I think that it's it's much more resource efficient to in, to, to give the funding to the military to do what the, they have done quite effectively. Um, than to, you know, try and build up an independent force with all new people with maybe less, ex like, on-the-ground experience. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I simply think that's, that's all it is. Um, do you have a, a response to that, or can I ask I, I, I think I'd like to, I, I guess, but I, I still, the, the crux of my argument here is that why should we be sending people affiliated with the military worldwide to assist in in the wakes of disasters i as you know from a position from the left-wing position is that not imperialist is it not well, do, do you I mean, I never do you, argue that i but you know, I, I argued about uh response in canada if you're talking about globally I, i'm trying i'm trying to speak I'm, I'm saying globally here i'm referring no, that's fine that's fine i i will if you want i can justify that you know if we ask a nation if they need help uh and they say yes please help and or the, the force best suited to that is is the military then we can send the military we also have forces that work with disaster relief you know but they're also specifically combined civilian military forces because it's all about the authoritarian command structure of the military that allows them to act so effectively and and quickly in times of crisis so i think you know obviously if the philippines had a landslide and we just sent the military to help, that would be imperialist in a sense, but if they ask for our help and we give it, I think that's completely, you know, justifiable uh, and fine. I think that's the end of our time. But, yeah, that, I think I'm it's gonna fine. I'm going to give you uh, two more minutes for Malcolm to ask a question and have Declan respond. Okay, um, so, yeah, Declan, I, uh, you know, you talked about this, this idea of, you know, having Canada within these systems of alliances to protect our resources. I think that's valid. You know, Canada has since World War II, and the breakup of the British Empire, you know, supported this idea of multilateralism, you know, existing within a system of alliances. But do you not agree that we can't ask anything of another nation to help us out if we don't put anything in? Like, can you expect that our already underfunded military should be, you know, even further weakened and then ask for another nation to protect us unconditionally? I believe that expand. Well, first of all, I believe that you know expanding our military will give us a. It, it sure. I will accept your framing on this question that perhaps it doesn't put us in as great of a bargaining position, but that our bargaining position is strengthened by our natural resources. Right. At, at the end of the day, if we are the only people with clean water, wouldn't you rather you know be trading it with people in exchange for protection? rather than have to fight for it yourself sure but in that in that scenario then we essentially become a tributary state and then our government's not working for the best interests of our own people and in my opinion that becomes a net negative for the canadian people rather than just being able to defend it for ourselves you know if it's some sort of water for protection deal then we're becoming subservient to another nation would you not agree i would agree but i'm also i'm i'm you know i'm arguing here that it's much better to have, uh, from a harm reduction standpoint, to enter into these deals rather than have to fight wars over it. It, it would be much better in, to strike these deals early and attempt to put the money that we would be spending on our military into perhaps fighting climate change rather than, uh, you know, pr bracing for what you perceive to be the inevitable collapse of the sort of international economy and, and the scarcity of resources. I think it would be much better, it would be money much better spent to combat climate change and to attempt to prevent these resource wars from happening rather than preparing for a resource war. I think that's, that is that is much more in the interest of the Canadian people because it doesn't involve an expansion of military power. And it doesn't involve sacrificing, you know, it, it doesn't involve a sort of total war approach to maintaining our resources. I, I yield my time. Our next uh, Q&A portion, uh, this time the order is going to be flipped. <clears throat> First question is for Malcolm. Malcolm, uh, in the spirit of what Declan has been asking you, 
I repeatedly, I want you to tell me how your side is going to affect our diplomatic ties with other nations. Go ahead, you have two minutes. Two minutes, okay. So, it's as I said, you know, negotiation and bargaining comes from a position of power. And, you know, you can obviously be a, a lesser power in a negotiation, but you still have to bring something to the table. And I would like to see a Canada that can hold its own weight and carry its own weight and maybe even punch above its weight um, at a bargaining table. Because I think that quite simply, you know, a government that is subservient to the interests of another nation, as, as Declan is saying he prefers, which, you know, again, I, I understand his point, but I don't believe that a government which is subservient to the interests of another nation uh, can truly be uh, a government that, you know, works for the best interests of its own people. You know, if you're giving your water out to another nation in exchange for protection, and then you know, that water's not all going to your own people. And sure, there's definitely, uh, you know, uh, an argument for altruism and, and charity, but that's not quite the same thing as, you know, if we went to the United States and said, we'll give you our natural resources uh, if you protect us. You know, I think first and foremost, the government's responsibility is to its own citizens. And I think first and foremost that those resources should be going to our own citizens. We should take care of our own needs before we work on, you know, essentially allowing ourselves to be all but taken over by a greater power. I just don't think that's fair to the Canadian people. I don't think that's, that's you know, what's in their best interest. I think what's in their best interest is, sure, maybe sacrificing something or maybe just closing a tax loophole. And, uh, you know, allowing ourselves to defend the resources that we have with our own, you know, abilities to do so. Uh, and that's my time. Thank you. Thank you for that response. Declan, along the same line, um, I tell me why diplomacy is mutually exclusive with military funding, um, because that seems like something that you need to prove uh, in order to argue this harm reduction diplomacy approach. You have two minutes to respond. Well, when I talk about harm reduction, I, I mean in terms of a, a global scale. So, like I said earlier, the Increasing military funding will not only increase military funding towards our, our interests, you know, in Canada. And if, if we expand our military, that puts us in a position where we might be inclined to wage resource wars. And on a global scale, if, if our country is in a position to wage resource wars, that's not necessarily a harm reduction position. That is... So... You know, with a diplomatic solution, whether it be trade deals, whether it be, you know, protection treaties, it, it means that Canadians are not being forced to, you know, enlist in, a, enlist in the military in order to defend their own natural resources. Because I don't think that, you know, a, a forced conscription or anything like that would be beneficial to Canadians in the event of a resource war. So I, I believe that you know, a, a diplomatic solution can be exclusive, can be mutually exclusive from increased military spending and from an increased military presence because the, you don't necessarily have to, you know, bring your soldiers to the, to the bargaining table in order to negotiate a peaceful, you know, a, a trade deal or a, a, a deal with your resources. I don't think that it's in the nation's interest to expand military funding for a resource war that may not happen, and especially from a harm reduction point of view, if we can prevent it from happening via other means, rather than just instantly ramping up military spending and bracing for the worst, when that is not our only option. Thank you for the response. You now have three minutes actual three minutes of time for open discussion. Uh, go ahead. Okay, um, I'm just kind of, you know, curious uh, as to, you know, your position on this. Do you think that, um, you know, it's the military who declares wars, or, or would you say it's the politicians? 
It's the politicians, of course. So, would you say that building up our military in a, you know, defensive capability would make us more likely to, you know, declare war? Or would you say that that's simply all about reforming, you know, our political decisions, reforming our systems of alliances, and, and reforming our attitudes uh, towards foreign wars, uh, which is completely independent of this argument? Uh, so, if we if we increase funding for the military, I, I find it very hard to believe. And you know what you're arguing is that it will only be used for, you know, our domestic military services. And while that that may be true, uh, sh showing the military, who I think it's foolish to assume that the military has no political sway, but I, I think that by showing the military that you're willing to open up the purse strings, so to speak, and let, you know, let them dip into whatever they may need, it, it would certainly sway um, Canadian, it, it would certainly sway at least certain politicians to, because they have the resources, you know, to perhaps lower Canadian oil prices and run on that sort of platform of a populist platform of, of lowering Canadian costs of living at the expense of, you know, increased military funding because the politicians have then shown that they're willing to increase the funding, which then just means that we may end up, you know, attempting to lower the cost of living for Canadians at the expense of other resource rich countries. So some countries like Japan or Switzerland have militaries that are very powerful uh, in relation to their size uh, and yet are not at all capable of fighting an offensive war, or not at all capable of projecting. And, you know, would you not think that this is completely possible to just build up a military for defensive purposes? Because I don't think this debate is really about, uh, you know, attacking other countries. I'm talking about defense. I'm talking about budgeting. So I think this idea of, like, geopolitics doesn't or like imperialism doesn't really play into it because it's more about who gets the money to do so. Uh, that's that's it for me. Go ahead. Um, that's basically your three minutes okay. right there. Ah, sorry about I'm that. I'm gonna I cut you off. The assumption that Declan's answer would have been longer than eight seconds. <laughs> um, seems like a nice place to stop it. All right, this is gonna be, I think, our last round of questions. Um once again the first question is for Malcolm um like you know from a standpoint of view because I just want to get this straight I want you to tell me or not you would support conscription in the case of sorts war or any kind of large war and I want you to explain how your answer is consistent with the leftist worldview uh, you have two minutes to respond I feel like this might take longer than two minutes but I'll try my best so uh under normal circumstances, no, I would not, uh, you know, support conscription. But I think it's completely reasonable to say that if a country is attacking us, um, in a non-nuclear context, if a country is attacking us and they're coming to take our, our resources or subjugate our country, then yes, I think conscription is, is completely reasonable. I don't know quite what it has to do with the budgeting, but I'm happy to answer this. Um, just in that there is going to be no government that will represent the, the interests of the people of Canada uh, in, the, in, in the, the same amount of effectiveness as a democratically elected Canadian government. That's not possible if we're under occupation or if we're a tributary state. I think I, I talked about this before. Um, and I think it's completely reasonable to, to expect that you know some sacrifices have to be made for the greater good. Um, and it's terrible, it's awful, and, and ideally having a bigger military and a more effective military than the one we have would, would stop people from wanting to come and take our stuff because it would scare them away. But in the circumstance that it happens, you know, it is, you know, I think Declan and I are both socialists. I think we both agree that socialism is democracy, and the more democracy you have, the more leftist the society is. Um, and, you know, I think that in order to preserve a truly Canadian democracy uh, that functions for the best interests of all Canadian people, you have to have a government run by Canadians. And if that means that people have to go to war, a defensive war, I do not support conscription in, in an offensive war. Um, if that means that people have to go to war 
then that means that people have to go to war and it's awful it's hard but i i think that it is completely you know possible within this leftist context uh to ask for uh conscription although again i don't quite know what it has to do with uh, a military budget thanks that's my time right yeah this round of questions is basically just me testing the limits of how far you are willing to extend your argument uh because i would like to fight to see <sighs> all right so going to your questions next uh we've heard malcolm a mechanism and an explanation of why the military is more like adequately prepared to respond to domestic emergencies than a civilian-led or privately-led force. What you can explain to me what disaster response domestically looks like in your world and why it is equal or better to what you would see on Malcolm's side? Uh, you have two minutes. So it's not necessarily that I, I disagree with Malcolm's point that a, a disaster response team should be that it, it should be attempt to be as efficient as as possible but i believe that tying it to the military and to military spending means that the military's interests begin to creep in me and by that i mean perhaps the military wouldn't take a, a natural disaster as seriously if it wasn't directly affecting them so I, I think a, a, you know, I'm, I'm not going to advocate for privately run disaster response teams because, you know, I, as I'm sure Malcolm would also agree that that would be a, a horrible idea. But I think that a more civilian focused disaster response team would allow for civilians who are on the ground where the disaster would strike to be, you know, be able to express what they need more efficiently rather than the military telling them what they need. I think that the military, Malcolm makes the argument that the military would be far more efficient, and while they may have the infrastructure, they may not have the actual boots on the ground knowledge when they arrive. And so I think that by working, you know, within a sort of civilian organization rather than the military organization, they would be able to get a better handle on what a, what an appropriate disaster response would be, whether it be for a, you know, a natural disaster or, you know, a you know, natural disaster or a, an, an industrial accident or, or something, something to that effect. And I, I think that, you know, in, in my ideal world where this disaster response is separate from the military, it would be a nationally funded, almost similarly the idea of militias, except for disaster response. So you would have set up all around the country, you would have these, you know, federally funded disaster response teams that would be able to respond to a local disaster in in the event of you know something like that happening all right, all right. uh thank you for your answer this is going to be your last open discussion period i'm going to give you four minutes uh May I ask you go a ahead <laughs> sure okay um what would you say then about you know operation laser taking over long-term care in COVID 19 or you know, protecting the, the, the flooding across the, the banks of, you know, the, the, the St. Lawrence River. What would you say about them was in the military's interest? I don't have an answer for that. I, I would... Okay. <laughs> That's all I need to know. So you can, yeah, go ahead, ask me a question. So I just want to ask if, if you... So your framing of the resource war question is that it is inevitable, yes? Do you believe that with the way that the climate emergency is going, we will have resource wars and we will have to defend ourselves from I them? Or, or, are you, so. or are you are you more, do you still believe that there might be hope to avoid these resource hope. wars? You know, I think that, you know, we can work on environmental policy and I think that's great. I think we should be putting more money into the environment as well, but that's outside of the same question. I think that in the events of you know, a, a scenario, a geopolitical scenario in which a resource war may be, um, uh, may be possible. I think that having a, a strong military and specifically a strong military tradition, you know, we need to build this up before that, um, is, you know, the militaries can be preventative. You know, no one's ever going to try and invade the United States of America. 
and you know I, I I think that you know and and that doesn't mean that I support the U.S. military's actions, obviously, but I'm I'm just saying that having a strong military is just as much of a preventative um, defense, you know, aspect than it is a a um, you know reactive one. And, and I think that you know the defense budget goes beyond as well just the military. You know, it also goes into our intelligence and and. Our, our diplomatic structures in, in a way that can protect our interests before war is even declared. So I, I, I think that there is hope, and that hope comes through having a strong negotiating position. Well, uh, okay, are we are we talking about military funding or are we talking about defense funding? Because if we're t if we're talking about defense funding, then yeah, sure, diplomacy falls under the broad umbrella of defense spending. But surely you'd agree that the military takes the lion's share of that money. Yes, of course. And that's fine. That's what I'm saying. You know, you have to have this strong position in order to act like you have a strong position. Right? I don't think you can really claim to be doing fine in the event of global resource shortages when you're giving out your resources to another nation in the hopes that maybe they'll protect you if the shit hits the fan. I just think that that's not fair to the Canadian people. I think that's a central argument that, that but, I have. I think that Canada should be able to stand up on its own two legs. And, but at what cost does that military spending come when, it, when, it, when you look at how a Canadian would live under this increased military spending? What are we sacrificing here when, when we talk about increasing our military? What, what, what are we looking at here? No, that's, that's a good question. And I, I, I think it's a good question, but I actually don't think it's a question I should have to answer. You know, every government has to decide their budget priorities. I'm simply saying that Canadian government should prioritize defense spending. You know, if you want me to list the things I think that shouldn't have funding but do, I can do that, but I think that's extraneous to this argument. However, I, I do think it is completely possible to close tax loopholes and tax breaks for the wealthier, whatever, implement fair inheritance or capital gains taxes on the wealthier to do so. But also, I mean, if we're talking about the framework of an actual socialist Canada, right, as we're talking about the left thing here, then it is simply about what resources are allocated where. But this is a debate about, you know, military funding. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not expecting. I'm not expecting you to lay out a you know in a socialist framework. Budget plan, you know. Well, but yeah, no, I I think it's just a priority. For sure, that was great from both of you. Uh, your time is up. I'm gonna have five minute closing statements. Uh, in a reversal of opening statements, uh, Declan, you get to go first. Uh, so I invite you to give your speech. So, uh, thank you for hosting the debate, and I just. I'd like to end this with, I guess, asking whoever's listening to consider at, at what at what point does military spending for the sake of, you know, defense, at what point does it cross over into being an unnecessary expenditure? Is it when we when we move past protecting ourselves? Is it when we move past protecting our resources? Is it when we're prioritizing offensive wars? And I believe it it. It, it, the military spending crosses that line when it's no longer about Canadian citizens. And I think that by opening up and, and in increasing funding for the military, there's a larger chance that with an increased budget, the military would not act, would be more inclined to not act with the interests of the Canadian people in mind. And so I think that by expanding this, expanding the military budget at a certain point, it stops being about protecting resources and more, it more becomes about protecting, you know, Canadian, you know, protecting a sense of Canadian nationalism. And I think that as leftists, it's, it's a very hard sell for me personally, on a, a nationalist angle on almost anything. Nationalism, while it's not inherently bad, can lead its way into some very oppressive and very, you know, anti-left-wing policies. And I think that encouraging nationalism through things like, you know, rallying, attempting to rally support for the military, it isn't an inherently bad thing, but it means that it opens the door for a, a lot of very, very bad um, ways of running things, shall we say. And I, I think, you know, my final point is that 
is it truly a reduction in harm to enter into a, a sort of is it a reduction of harm for Canadian citizens if we are entering into an agreement with another country to keep us safe rather than putting our own lives on the line for our own protection? And I think with that, I will yield my time. Okay. Malcolm, I invite you to give your closing statement, not exceeding five minutes. Go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. So I think before I get into this, I do want to thank uh, Declan for, for an excellent debate. I, I have enjoyed this, and I, I think he's made some very good points. Uh, I want to thank you, of course, Julia, for moderating it. You didn't have to, and it's a very good thing to do. You did a great job. So I can, I, before I get into my opening arguments and, and my summary of the round, I, I, I just want to thank both of you um, for, I think, an excellent debate. Um, and yeah, as I said, you know, Declan did give a good argument. Um, but I think Canada is a sovereign nation. And, you know, just as you wouldn't expect, uh, I don't know, Australia to act in Canada's best interests, I don't think it's fair to expect uh, another nation, specifically a, a, a superpower that Declan wants us to enter into an agreement with, to act in our best interests. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, you know, he talks about harm reduction. Right, you know, is it harm reduction to? Is is it really a reduction of harm to? You know, it, Declan says it's a reduction of harm to enter into an agreement with, uh, a, you know, a, a larger power to protect us, uh, in exchange for resources. However, you know, I I think throughout this round I've adequately argued. I hope I've adequately argued that this is fact does more harm than good. You know, because I don't think any of us can really expect that uh, a non-Canadian government, or maybe even a non-democratic government, um, even a Canadian government which is not looking out for our own interests because they have other priorities, like making sure that, you know, whatever, you know, rump state remains after America collapses gets their annual water shipment on time, uh, can really serve the best interests of the Canadian people. And so I, I think that it's not harm reduction, it's harm escalation uh, to, to decide that Canada should just be subservient for the rest of its existence. Um, and I think if he's talking about us not getting drawn into foreign wars, you know, he started with that. I don't think it's, you know, the logic really fits there for Declan to say we shouldn't be getting drawn into foreign wars uh, on behalf of superpowers and then at the same time saying we should link ourselves militarily with a superpower rather than building up our own military. You know, and, and I don't think that his argument at all really addressed um, my arguments about how building up our own military would actually make us less likely to enter into these uh, wars with, you know, imperial wars for superpowers simply because we didn't, we wouldn't need to curry favor with them. Um, you know, he also rarely talked about actually decreasing the Canadian military budget, only really in the context of disaster relief. Uh, and and I, I think you will remember that when needled on disaster relief, um, he didn't really have an answer. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and also worried about protecting Canadian nationals, and this is a valid point. You know, and I think that there is sort of a false dichotomy in between left-wing nationalism and right-wing nationalism. You know, right-wing nationalism being a hatred for other countries and left-wing nationalism being a love for your own country. And you could definitely make arguments that a love for your own country is just as bad. I wouldn't. You know, I, I think I've argued that a left-wing nationalism in the tradition of many Canadian leftists who we both admire greatly and we've talked about on this show before, such as Tommy Douglas and The Waffle, uh, and even to an extent Pierre Trudeau, um, is a good thing. You know, as I said, and I think this is the central argument that I've made, and I think I've made it quite well, that um, the Canadian government needs to serve the interests of the Canadian people. It cannot do that when it is militarily subservient uh, to foreign powers, and the only way that the Canadian government will not be militarily subservient to foreign powers is if our military can stand up on its own, and if we can defend ourselves. Because if we cannot defend ourselves, we are not a truly independent nation, and if we are not a truly independent nation, and our government's not looking out for the best interests of all Canadians. You know, I think Declan made a very good argument, but I just don't think 
uh, I think that honestly the odds were stacked against him because the argument that we should be decreasing our our military budget is not a logical one to begin with from a left perspective. So again, that being said, he did a fantastic job of arguing it. Uh, I thank him for an excellent debate. I really enjoyed this, uh, and I've seen professional debaters do worse, or formal debaters do worse. So. I guess, yeah, with my remaining five seconds, I'll just say again, thank you both for an excellent debate. I really enjoyed it, and maybe we'll do it again one day. Great. Lovely debate. Uh, you guys are both very polite, I have to say. <laughs> we're, we're a Canadian <laughs> politics podcast. We don't have a mean bone in our bodies. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think before, before we wrap up here, I, I just want to say that you know, I, I will actually concede defeat in this debate. I, I know I said at the top of the show that we were going to let Jaleel give that call, but I think, Malcolm, you've definitely changed my mind on this topic. Let's go! <laughs> Let's go! Look, look, when I do formal debate, it's all about getting, like, technical victory, right? But I, So it's, it's really good when I hear someone say, you've changed my mind. I, I think I that, so you know, I, I was... fantastic job as well. I, I was going into this, and I was listening to your arguments, and I was like, I, I was just, I, I, I know I wasn't saying anything, but I was just mentally going, oh, shit, this is a really good point. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so I think, you know, for the record, Malcolm has changed my mind on this. And I think that, you know, without handing over, without taking over Jalila's job, I'd just like to... Um, give Malcolm the victory for this one because he's definitely opened my mind up about this. Well, I'm not one to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I will say, Declan, you did a fantastic job. You really, you brought up some good points. I think that there were some points in there that I didn't adequately refute, so I think, yeah, no, a fantastic job to you as well. I was really, this is the first time I've heard you, you know, spar in terms of ideas, and I think you did a very good job of it. So, yeah, good job to you as well. Alright, um, sure. I think we're gonna end it here, and we ran just about an hour, I think, so it's pretty That's good perfect. timing. Um, Jalila, obligatory, um, thank you for coming on. Is there anything you, want, anything you want to plug? Any promotions? Anything like that? No problem at all. I just want to say I do agree with Malcolm. I have heard, like, actual competitive debaters do worse than that, definitely. So, good job on, on that. Uh, Good job to both of you, actually. That's it. Thank you very much. All right, and I think with that, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. So uh, as always, uh, thanks so much for listening. I've been Declan. Thanksgiving. And yeah, this has been your Juno. Catch us again, hopefully next week. Yeah, we'll see.